according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You can turn to John chapter 5 this morning. John chapter 5. As we begin episode 12 in the Galilean ministry. Episode number 12. Remember, we restart the numbering of each episode as uh, we get to the various sections. The Galilean ministers, the longest of them, has 56 episodes. And then uh, from there, we'll move on to the last Judean and Perean ministry and uh, so forth. By the way, I appreciate it. If you find typos and so forth, feel free to email me and let me know so that in subsequent editions, we can fix those. Precious had found one. We've only been using this for four years now, so I don't know how closely people even look at it, but she uh, she found a typo down in event number 25, so I guess she's reading ahead a little bit. We're only on episode 12, but episode 25 has a typo. That's where Jesus answers. Do you have your harmonies with you this morning? Jesus' uh, answer to a demand for a sing. A sing. Yeah. It should be a demand for a sign, but a demand for a sing. So I'm guessing that singers, like Precious, they, they're very sensitive to demands for a sing, one way or the other. All right. Is, is all this being recorded? Oh, wow. Okay. Well, we're being recorded. John chapter 5. Let's uh, start with prayer then, organize our thoughts, sanctifying uh, our presence before His holiness, shall we pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the opportunity we have this morning to assemble together and to receive instruction. We ask for your blessing upon our time and concentration as we study the material, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Let's uh, take a look. If you did bring your harmonies with you, we can glance at it a little bit and we'll refer to it occasionally this morning. Um, first of all, let's just examine John chapter 5. We haven't been in the Gospel of John for a while now. It's uh, been a little bit since we left off chapter 4. In fact, we've covered 11 events since the last time we've been in the Gospel of John. As chapter 4 came to an end, he was... Uh, returning to the Galilean region from uh, his ministry there in, in Judea. And uh, along the way, he ministered to the Samaritan woman at the well. And then uh, as he crosses over into Galilee, uh, there was this uh, royal official there and at Cana, and he healed the son from a distance. The, the son was down in Capernaum, but Jesus simply gave the word, and, and at that very hour, the son was healed. And uh, we're told at the end of chapter 4 that this is, again, a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. And these particular signs, of course, Jesus did many miracles, but there are seven of them in particular that are spotlighted by the Gospel of John. And we're told in the purpose clause for the Gospel of John that these are the ones that have been recorded because you can use these signs as an evangelism outline to present Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Well, we're going to get to the third sign today because the third sign that John records is this healing here at Bethesda, Bethsaida, Bethzatha, Beth, whatever it is. And we'll talk about that this morning also. 
So reading now from John 5, 1, after these things, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Then some disputed verses, and we'll talk about those, a a disputed verse and a half. Uh, the second part of verse 3 and verse 4. And depending on which Bible translation you're reading, uh, you might have them in brackets, you might have them in parentheses, you might not have them at all, you might just have simply a footnote or what have you. Uh, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. In parentheses. Then verse 5. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately the man became well, picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now, it'd be nice if the chapter ended there. (laughs) But the rest of verse 9 says, now it was the Sabbath on that day. And uh, that launches into the remainder of this chapter, the huge hornet's nest that was stirred up because Jesus had the audacity to actually make a man well on the Sabbath day and to violate by the Pharisees' definition of what is proper and not proper to do on the Sabbath. And we've covered this already from a number of different angles. Remember, the mindset on the part of the Pharisees is that if we're doing it and you're not doing it, something's wrong with you. And we can turn that around a little bit here to say, if we're not doing it and you're doing it, something's wrong with you. And obviously the Pharisees weren't healing people. uh, And by virtue of the Lord doing just that, well, and there's something wrong. What are you doing? You're doing it on the Sabbath. That can't be right. And the miracles were really the the biggest uh, uh, matter that the Pharisees couldn't deal with. And even Nicodemus confessed that. He said, we know you're from God because these miracles are undeniable. And so we'll have more comments to make about that as well. All right, let's get some study on this. I don't know at what pace this will take us here today. In fact, we've got some technical things we're going to take care of pretty early in this. And then uh, we'll launch into the miracle. We'll launch into the aftermath. I think it's probably best if we, because it is a long chapter, 47 verses long, and it it progresses from one subject to another subject to another subject. And it all appears to be in the aftermath of this miracle and the messages that follow. So we'll go down through at least verse 9 to cover the miracle itself. Sick guy laying by the pool. Jesus makes him better. He goes home. Okay? Simple. We can teach that in, in 30 seconds. But then the aftermath of that and what gets, uh, what uh, the impact of that is and the jealousy and the bitterness of the Pharisees and the accusations that then start flying, we'll uh, deal with that. Because the uh, messages that then are given in response are extraordinary. The content, the doctrinal content of this chapter is it's remarkable. And we'll have to deal with it, particularly we'll get into these areas here of uh, the Father's working, I'm working, the Father shows the Son how to work. Um, there's a tremendous amount of paterology and Christology right here in this chapter. We also have reference to resurrections in this chapter, the resurrection of life and the resurrection of judgment. We'll have to deal with that. This chapter also deals with the uh, the judgment, the fact that he hears and he judges, he has righteous judgment, and uh, so forth. So it's a long chapter. I anticipate we'll be here for uh, 
some time anyway, a couple of Wednesdays, who knows? Lord does. All right. First of all, this feast is almost certainly a Passover feast. And I believe it was, although the term Passover does not appear in the text. The feast of John 5 is almost certainly a Passover feast. As we read it from verse 1, it just says, After these things there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. We recall that John, many of the places where John is writing, he ends up having to explain certain terms. He's writing years after the other three Gospels have been written. He is not as concerned about the synoptic chronology, as it were, the the Matthew, Mark, and Luke chronology with all the events, all the well-known stories and so forth. Most of the Gospel of John is unique. Um, And unless it, it truly fits into his purpose to describe the events surrounding the Passover, John would have no reason to mention a Passover. Uh, It's interesting, the scholars that dispute whether this is a Passover or not, and they spend countless hours writing countless articles and books and so forth, debating this back and forth. It's interesting is because those who insist that this is not a Passover are then wildly divergent in terms of, well, what what, what feast is it then, right? Because they'll say, well, we think it was the Feast of Trumpets, to which a person could say, well, this verse doesn't say it was a Feast of Trumpets, say, or we think it was the Feast of Booths. Well, this verse doesn't say it was a feast of booths. This verse just says it was a feast. And so those who dispute the Passover feast because they say that, well, this verse doesn't say it was a Passover feast, um, cannot then in turn make any grounds to suppose that it was any other type of feast. Whether it was or it wasn't, it's not, the scripture doesn't say it. I, frankly, I don't care. But I do think that it is... Uh, a help for us in terms of the overall chronology, and you'll see that here. Sub point A, if this is a Passover feast, this is the Passover of 31 A.D., two years before the cross. This is the Passover of 31 A.D., two years before the cross. And I'm going to assume, just for the sake of this study, that this is a Passover feast. I mentioned that in terms of when we first published this harmony and the dating system that's in this harmony that uh, the calendar we're going to go with as a basis uh, is going to place the crucifixion on Friday, April 3rd, or April 3rd, yes, 33 A.D., just to give it our Gregorian dates. And so it's a 33 A.D. crucifixion date. Now, I realize that there are others that would dispute that. They prefer a 32 date or a 30 date and so forth. Uh, But based on this study, the, the dates we're going with have a 33 A.D. crucifixion date. So we're still two years out, all right? We're still two years out. One year from now will be a Passover that Jesus actually won't go to. The first Passover he's ever missed in his entire life. And then the Passover after that, a year later, is the one upon which he's hanging on the cross as the Passover lamb. So we are now two years out. Um, And we pointed out that if we did not have the Gospel of John, we really wouldn't know that the ministry of Jesus Christ was much more than about a year long anyway. It's the Gospel of John that gives us the framework of these, uh, the undoubted Passovers, because they're called Passovers, and then this feast here that we uh, assume to be a Passover. So with the Gospel of John as our framework, then we get about a three and a half year ministry, and we get a good chronology in terms of uh, the events that we, uh, that we synchronize in the life of Christ. So point B, 
In our Harmony of the Gospels, there are 11 events that came between John 4 and John 5. And there are 24 events that come in between John 5 and John 6. All right. And this is simply examining the harmony, examining the the listings and the events and so forth and tracking the distance that's traveled, tracking the places where he goes, tracking the time. Not a lot of time references that are mentioned, but occasionally when there's a time uh, reference mentioned, for example, he stayed there for a few days and, and so forth. Or if there's a season that's mentioned in particular, then we want to we want to make note of that. See, when he's giving a message and he says, do you say there are a few months left until the harvest? Well, that's among other things, that's a big clue as to what time of year that is that he's ministering in that location. And so a lot of that goes into the the uh, detective work, uh, a little bit of deductive forensic science trying to uh, do the homework to, to synchronize all these things. If this is not a Passover, if this is uh, some other feast of whatever, I mean, it could be. Purim, it could be, I mean, it could be a non-biblical feast. It could just be a Jewish feast. Um, we're left then trying to cram the ministry into two and a half years instead of three and a half years. And we really have a bubble of events crammed into one of those years that's disproportionate to the others. And so just in terms of, of proportion of events per year and so forth, it really is natural to take this as a uh, as a Passover feast. By the time we get to John 6, you'll notice John 6 is event number 36. We're presently in event number 12, and that's the feeding of the 5,000, and that's a Passover that he doesn't go to. All right? And he stays away from the uh, region of Jerusalem and Judea and so forth during that time. And between now and then, there is a tremendous amount that takes place, including... Um, Many of the miracles that are rather well famous, uh, the picking out of the twelve, the, uh, the selection of the twelve apostles, the Sermon on the Mount, healing the centurion's servant, raising the widow's son, uh, that message to John the Baptist we're going to have to deal with, that everybody blames John the Baptist of being some weak sister or something and, and, and having problems in prison. We'll deal with that. That's coming up. Uh, the sinful woman that's weeping and, and anointing him. Um, and uh, a lot of these... Items here, the parables of the kingdom, as I said, the Sermon on the Mount, calming of the sea. So many of these miracles are coming up, and this is all within now this next year. And so if, if we're dealing with uh, some other random feast that's not a Passover feast, then I think we have more problems than answers uh, in dealing with that. All right, regardless of whether it was a Passover or not, point two, this is now the third recorded sign miracle, sign slash miracle, in the Gospel of John, and it is the healing of an invalid at the Pool of Bethesda. The third recorded sign miracle in the Gospel of John is the healing of an invalid at the Pool of Bethesda. And that's verses 1 through 9, or verses 1 through 9a. 9b is the, is the uh, trumpet music of, uh, it was the Sabbath on that day. The third recorded sign miracle in the Gospel of John is the healing of an invalid at the Pool of Bethesda. So we have the turning of the water to wine. We have the healing of uh, the, uh, the uh, royal official's son. And now we have the healing of this invalid, this, uh, if he was a paralytic, and, and, uh, as he's described here. Now, the, um, we're going to do a little bit of homework on this. Just 
as I referenced in a moment ago, John chapter 20 gives you your purpose clause. And if you're not familiar with it, I would just, John 20 and verse 30, there were many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. All right. And uh, elsewhere, I think it's Matthew or Luke or elsewhere, it says, you know, if we wrote down everything Jesus did, the whole world couldn't contain those books. But John says there's many other signs that he performed which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So you take the seven miracles recorded in John, or the eight miracles, if you count the resurrection itself as the eighth miracle. Um, you take these signs then and you can put them together into an outline or put them together into a structure to demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ and that believing have life in his name. It's, a, it's an evangelism outline, so to speak. Now, here is miracle number three, the healing of this man, which we've discussed. Let's do some homework on the, the geography, though. Um, a lot of times, I didn't get here or didn't get my map set up and so forth, but a lot of times, I'll just draw pictures. How about that? The... Um, if you have a map of Jerusalem in the back of your uh, Bible, or if you have a Bible atlas and different uh, resources that you have available to you, um, the, the pool of Bethesda, there we go, generally speaking, and depending on how you have Jerusalem drawn out, um, Jerusalem does have a couple of hills, a western hill and an eastern hill, and then over here is your... Uh, uh, your Mount of Olives over here to the east. And uh, then there's a valley in between the other two hills there. Uh, the Temple Mount sitting right about in here. Okay. The uh, Sheep Gate with the pools, two pools, is right over in there. It's not the main entrance. Okay. In other words, these aren't the glass doors. Right. Most of you this morning came in the glass doors over here off the parking lot. They aren't the glass doors off the parking lot to the temple. Okay, this is it's not even like the office door over back here. Some of you came in the office door this morning. Okay, I'm guessing those were the ones that were ashamed to park in the parking lot and be seen publicly walking through the glass doors. Okay, uh, this would be not like the glass doors, not like the office door. This would be like coming through the fire escape or something or coming through uh, a door that's not really used or coming through a window. I mean, the, uh, the sheep gate, if you think about it, there were a lot of sheep in the temple, weren't there? What were they doing there? Well, yeah, they're, they're showing up to get killed, right? The, they were bringing these sheep in for the offerings, for the sacrifices. And so you're bringing in hundreds and thousands of these sheep and they're coming in and this is, you know, the last last chance to get watered here is you're bringing them in as they're waiting and so forth and you're keeping them calm and then you're taking them in to, to, uh, to slaughter them as a part of the ritual, as a part of the Levitical uh, practices, all right? And so that then becomes significant as well. And so depending on what, what maps you might have, um, I'm sure the artwork is better than what you see on the wall, but uh, it will look something like that. And the Sheep Gate is there. There are some, there really aren't any more archaeological disputes, really, um, because I think in recent years this has really been nailed down. If you're reading an older Bible or an older uh, you're looking at an older map, then you might find a couple of other possible locations for this pool, uh, usually in the southeast corner, or there's even one that puts it over here. But I think really in the last 20 years, the uh, the archaeology on this has been nailed down uh, without without debate. 
So uh, we know precisely where this gate is, where this pool is, where these uh, porticos are, the five that are mentioned here, plus a sixth overall that covered the, the area there. Anyway, it's an interesting archaeological study. But there is a significant aspect to it that we'll see here in a moment. Now, what is this pool called anyway? What, uh, does everybody have Bethesda in their Bible? Does somebody have Bethzatha or does somebody have Bethsaida? Usually we get a, a variety of uh, Bibles, depending if you're sitting here with a New King James or you're sitting here with an NIV or sitting here with something else. New American Standard has Bethesda. Does everybody have Bethesda this morning? Are we all in agreement? Okay, so there are no non-Bethesdas here. Okay, well, that's great. Um, the pool of Bethesda, Bethsaida, Bethzatha. So subpoint A, the pool of Bethesda, Bethsaida, or Bethzatha is a good text criticism exercise. The pool of Bethesda, Bethsaida, or Bethzatha is a good text criticism exercise. What do I mean by text criticism? I'll explain that here in a moment. I don't mind getting technical this morning because it's going to be it's going to be good for us. And we'll start with Bethsaida or Bethesda or Bethzatha, and we'll use that as a practice. And then we'll, uh, the, the more significant text criticism exercise is this big bracket here in verse four and the second part of verse three. All right, because we have to answer the question: Do those words belong in our Bibles? Okay. And uh, we'll talk about that here in a moment. So we'll do a little bit of homework this morning. The pool of Bethesda, Bethsaida, Bethzatha is a good text criticism exercise. Now, what do I mean by those terms that are in the parentheses? Okay, and I'm going to explain those and uh, we'll spend a little bit of time doing that. I don't mind spending the time doing that because I think there's a, uh, a misconception out there and I want... Austin Bible Church to be equipped to be able to answer when somebody comes to you and they have this question about why we're so weird, right? Why does your pastor teach from the Greek? Why does he read Hebrew? Why do you do that? See, why don't you just read King James? Because that's the God-breathed and inspired word for the English-speaking world, see? And you'll encounter people that will tell you that if you're not reading King James, you're serving Satan because the... New American Standard Bible is a Alexandrian is the text of the Alexandrian cult. All right. Well, I've met those people and I try to be gracious. Now, uh, in parentheses, these are different Greek manuscripts. First of all, when we talk about we like to we're teaching the Bible, we're reading the passage, and it's very common for a pastor to say, "Now, in the original, this is what it says." Okay, and that's a little bit misleading because when we talk about the original text uh we we don't want to leave the impression that that we actually have somebody somewhere in a museum has the actual parchment that john the son of zebedee sat down with with a quill in his hand and scratched out you know in the beginning was the word the word was with god the word was god and he rolled out this scroll and he wrote 21 chapters and he rolled it up and that's the original manuscript isn't it there was some day, way back when, some day, I believe before 70 A.D., because this describes the current circumstances in Jerusalem, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool. So Jerusalem hasn't been destroyed yet. Um, 
But at some point, John sat down with a, with a scroll and a, and, a, and a quill, and he wrote out the Gospel of John. Okay? That's called, that, that original manuscript of any book is called the autograph. Okay? That's the term for it. It's called the autograph. The original manuscript. Okay? And we don't have that. We never have had that. Okay? That's been lost in, in, in every uh, Bible book is that way. But what we have are copies of copies of copies of copies because when John was done writing it, he couldn't take it to, um, you know, some copy place and get it replicated and, and so forth. There, there were no photocopiers. There were no digital scanners. Everything was copied by hand. Scribes would sit down with a scroll here and a blank scroll here and they would copy what they were reading, see. Or in some places... They would, uh, you'd, you'd line up a dozen students with a dozen blank scrolls, and then a reader would stand up there with the, with the master scroll, and he'd be reading it, and all the 12 uh, disciples sitting out there would be writing down, and they could do 12 at a time that way, or 20 at a time that way, or however many scribes they had on hand that way. So we're dealing with manuscripts that are copied from copies from copies from copies from copies, okay? And that's what we deal with. But now, since there are so many copies... Mistakes are very easy to spot, see, because you find, you know, a certain number of them are read Bethesda and a certain number of them read Bethsatha and some of them read Bethsaida. And you can start to recognize the different lineages of, of, of uh, manuscripts because mistakes will get repeated by the, the manuscripts that are copied from those. Okay. And then occasionally a manuscript will come along and they'll have something crossed off and they'll have a correction in there. And there's a, a scribal correction based upon what he believes to be a better reading of a particular spelling or a particular word. Now, why I'm going to take the time to do all this is to point out that how reliable our Bibles are because the vast majority, we're talking 99.5% of all what are called variants or changes in the text are inconsequential. They're spelling matters. They're matters like, like here. You know, you know, how is it spelled? What is the gate called? And in some cases, the gate we've been dealing with could be called a lot of different things. You know, was Peter, was he called Peter or was he called Cephas? Or was he called Simon? Okay, well, he was called all of those things. There were different names for the same person, and so a different scribe might use a different spelling, might use a different name, and they could both be right. They could all be right, depending upon who the scribe was and how he understood the, the name and how he uh, and how he simply chose to spell it. Now, the uh, manuscripts that show Bethesda, and this is why another uh, it's a good exercise, because um, there are a lot of critics of uh, the critical text. In other words, they want to simply go with the Textus Receptus, the received text. This is the Bible and all these other things are, are wrong. And they'll accuse the uh, New American Standard in particular of following after the critical text and ignoring the majority text, so to speak. And, and because of that, that's really the underlying thing there is their allegiance to King James probably more than anything else, but not, not in every case. Okay. The Pool of Bethesda is the spelling reading in the following, uh, in the following manuscripts, and the uh, abbreviations for them are uh, capital A, capital C, and I'll talk about those here in a moment. That's the uh, uh, Alexandrinius is the, is the Codex A. We'll talk about that. Uh, Codex C is Codex Ephraimi. That's a wonderful story on that. 
uh, some minuscule manuscripts, the family one and family 13. And it's also the reading of the majority text. The reading of the majority text is Bethesda. So that's the King James reading. That's the uh, but it's interesting is that that's the reading that New American Standard selected, NIV selected, most modern text selected, even though it's different than the uh, more popular Sinaiticus and uh, the Nestle Land 27th edition, the, the UBS 4th edition. Those are the critical texts. In other words, these are the Greek Bibles I read more than any other are the Nestle text. Identical with the UBS 4 text. Those are the Greek Bibles I typically read. But the majority text sometimes has uh, better spellings on things. Sometimes it has more complete readings on things. And, and then, you know, a Bible scholar has to decide which is the more likely reading. All right. And it's, it's interesting because the New American Standard usually follows these. Almost always. But in this case, the editors made the decision. They said, you know what? We think that the better reading is the Bethesda reading rather than the Bethesda reading. Okay, so it demonstrates. I'm spending the time here this morning to show this. It demonstrates that the New American Standard translators weren't just simply blindly enslaved to the Nestle Greek text. They weren't just blindly enslaved to the United Bible Society's fourth edition, see, or third edition, uh, or even the second edition, which was the one out there when the Lockman Foundation first did the NASB, all right, that they used it as a base, but they evaluated every single variant on a case-by-case basis to explain what uh, what uh, they thought was going on. Now, let's, uh, for a moment, and I won't take up a whole lot of time with this, but it's been a while since we've talked about manuscripts, and I do want you to be equipped to give an account, to give an answer, and... We'll take a little bit of time this morning doing it just because I love it. I think it's fun. <laughs> and at some point, I'd like, like to teach a class on manuscripts and text criticism and so forth. Different kinds of manuscripts. New Testament manuscripts were written in a formal printed style somewhat similar to capital letters are known as unkios. An unkio, well, I don't see the term majuscules very much, but unkio you see all the time. Everything was written in capital letters, no lowercase letters. Okay. And generally they were written in block form, left to right, from the margin to the margin, no space between words, no space between sentences, just trying to cram as many lines as you can on a scroll. Because printing was so expensive, you don't want to waste space with something like formatting. All right, You just left to right, top to bottom, you're going to fill that scroll with, uh, with letters. And that's why sometimes portions are hard to read because the edges of those scrolls over the last 2,000 years have gotten frayed or wet or burned or scratched or cut off and so forth, and you lose some uh, of what you're trying to read. Unkio manuscripts of Greek and biblical literature flourish from the 3rd to the 7th centuries A.D. Gradually, during the next two centuries, the style degenerated until a reform uh, in handwriting was initiated consisting of smaller letters in a running hand called minuscules. All right, so we just know this historically, and so if we have an unkio manuscript, we can date it between the 3rd and 7th centuries. If we have a minuscule manuscript, we can date it. We know that it's later than the unkios, and it undoubtedly came from either an unkio original or another minuscule. So the minuscules are later than the unkios, by and large. Minuscule manuscripts in Greek are dated from the 9th to the 15th centuries. Nevertheless, this running hand, also known as cursive, was employed by the Greeks for non-literary, everyday documents from antiquity. 
The cursive hand proved to be more practical than the more formal book hand and became popular almost immediately throughout Western Europe, with the exception of some liturgical writers who employed uncials as late as the 10th and 11th centuries. Testimony to the fidelity of the New Testament text comes primarily from three sources, Greek manuscripts, ancient translations, and patristic citations. So let's understand that when we're looking at the New Testament, or really the Old Testament, we're looking at, not only are we looking at the manuscripts of the Bible themselves that are being copied and copied and copied and copied, but we're also looking at translations, for example. When the Coptic church put the Bible into their language, we have a Coptic translation. We have a Gothic translation. We have a Syriac translation, which is an Aramaic dialect. All right, And the, we have early Latin translations that are even earlier than the Vulgate. And these foreign language translations are great because they come alongside, in addition to the Greek manuscripts, to help us to uh, recognize readings, to recognize what's the proper reading and what's a mistake, what has been done incorrectly. Then there's also the patristic citations. You realize that the church fathers, like Tertullian and, and, and uh, Irenaeus and all these guys, Clement, they, they wrote volumes and volumes. They wrote sermons, they wrote Bible studies, they wrote homilies, they wrote commentaries. And in those writings, they quoted the Bible. See? And so you can look to see, well, how did, how did Tertullian write this verse? In fact, he wrote an entire passage on John 5. He wrote a commentary on this miracle. And so what did he call it? Did he call it Bethesda? Did he call it Bethzatha? Did he call it Bethsaida? See? And so by looking to see what he used, and we're not saying he's God-breathed and inspired or anything, but by looking to see what he used and how he wrote, we can get a big clue on what kind of Bible he had available to him. Right? What was the manuscript he was reading from? What was the Bible he was learning from? Part of the detective work in putting this together. All right. Um, so papari, uncules, minuscules, and lectionaries. Lectionaries are your Bible class lessons. The most distinguishing characteristic of each of these classes has been chosen. Um, there's something even earlier than uncials, and those are the papyrus manuscripts. And we'll talk about those as well. At present, there are 88 catalog papyri, an additional 274 uncial manuscripts, and 245 lectionaries in uncial script, 2,795 manuscripts, and 1,964 lectionaries in minuscule script. Okay? That's a lot. That's a lot. And because we have so much, it's easy to spot the variants. It's easy to spot the mistakes. It's easy to recreate the, uh, the original. And that's all text criticism is. Text criticism is an effort to recreate what the original manuscript said when John sat down and put scroll on parchment. What did John say? Did he say Bethesda? Did he say Bethzatha? Did he say Bethsaida? Okay. And so you see the papyrus, or papyri, plural, uh, ranging from the 2nd century to the 8th century, the uncial, the great uncial codexes, from the 3rd century to the 11th century, the minuscules, beginning with the 4th century, but not really taking, on, uh, taking uh, off until the 8th century, and going all the way to the 19th century, by the way. Even after the printing press, there were still works done to hand-copy manuscripts, and then the various lectionaries between the 9th and the 18th centuries. So this kind of gives you a sense for what we're dealing with. All right, there's a papyrus fragment. <laughs> Can you read that? Seems um, 
You see what archaeologists have to deal with? <laughs> what linguists have to deal with? This is a scrap of vellum papyrus. It's just a scrap of, of uh, it's a fragment of John 18, verses 31 through 33. Okay? Just a tiny little scrap. And it's in horrible condition. It's hard to read, but it's undeniable what it is based upon the words and how they appear. It's called P52 in those abbreviations that you saw a little while ago on the slides. Papyrus fragment, it's two and a half inches by three and a half inches. It's from uh, originally from a much larger codex. It's the earliest known copy of any portion of the New Testament. It dates from the first half of the second century, probably A.D. 117 to 138. And Adolf Deisman argues that it may be even earlier, could even be first century when uh, all is said and done. The papyrus piece written on both sides contains portions of five verses from the Gospel of John. Although this is a short fragment, it has proved to be the closest and most valuable link in the chain of transmission. Because of the early date and its location, it was found in Egypt. That's another thing, is how did it get that far? See, not only are you tracking what was written, but where did you find this manuscript? Where has it been? Where has it traveled to? Because of its early date and its location, some distance from the traditional place of composition, we assume that John wrote from Ephesus in Asia Minor, this portion of the Gospel of John tends to confirm the traditional date of the composition of the Gospel before the end of the first century. And it's called the Rylands Fragment because it belongs to the John Rylands Library at Manchester, England. All right, other papyrus and things here. I'm going to skip over a lot of this. I just want you to see some things. All right, if you want to write these down, some of the most important papyri that we have are called the, the Chester Beatty papyri. And they're known as P45, P46, and P47. There is a common index that applies to these papyri that's maintained by scholars worldwide. And P45, P46, and P47 are known as the Chester Beatty papyri. And um, they're important in a lot of uh, New Testament studies. Consists of three codices and contains most of the New Testament. And there's a lot of information on it there. Um, I don't want to spend the whole hour dealing with this, but it talks about how many uh, of Paul's epistles, how many of the Gospels, how many of the uh, different books in the New Testament that we have available, the condition of the leaves, and so forth, whether it's an Alexandrian text type, a Western text type, a Byzantine text type, and so forth. The, uh, besides the uh, Chester Babady papyrus, we have the Bodmer papyrus, P66. So Bodmer papyrus is another one you want to understand. That's P66. Very important study and one that comes up in this study because the P66 is one of the uh, testimonies to the Bethsaida reading. P66 dates from about A.D. 250. And uh, the Bodmer papyri includes 66, 72, and 75. And they're very early. They date from the 2nd to the 3rd century. Most important discovery of the New Testament papyri since the Chester Beatty manuscripts was the acquisition of the Bodmer collection by the Library of World Literature at Coagny near Geneva. P66 dates from AD 200 or earlier. Contains 104 leaves of John, and you see some of the scripture references there, and fragments of 40 other pages, including uh, chapters John 14 through 21. The text is a mixture of Alexandrian and Western types, and there are some 20 alterations between the lines that invariably belong to the Western family. P72 is the earliest known copy of Jude, 
So it becomes important in New Testament studies in the book of Jude, 1 Peter and 2 Peter. It dates from the 3rd century, contains several apocryphal and canonical books. And it describes some of those books there. So that's P66, 72, and 75. Those are the Bodmer papyri. Then your great Uncial manuscripts. And I'm only going to give you three of them this morning. Codex Vaticanus is the one that's abbreviated with a capital B. Written between 325 and 350. Perhaps the oldest Uncial on parchment or vellum. One of the most important witnesses to the text in the New Testament. Manuscript copy of the whole Bible. Genesis to Revelation. Probably written by the middle of the 4th century. We don't have that entirety yet. Its present condition does not contain all of that, but originally it did. Originally it did. It was not known to text scholars until after 1475 when it was cataloged in the Vatican Library. For the next 400 years, scholars were prohibited from studying it. <laughs> See, the Catholics weren't really interested in the Greek manuscripts. They had their Latin. They had their Vulgate. And that's all they cared about. In any event, that's uh, it's a very important early testament. Uh, another one is, that's what it looks like, Codex Sinaiticus. And that's abbreviated with the Hebrew letter Aleph. This letter right here is the Aleph. And so when you see that abbreviation, that's Codex Sinaiticus. And of, as, of the great uncials, the ones you really want to be worked up about, are Vaticanus, abbreviated capital B, uh, Sinaiticus, abbreviated with the Aleph, and then the next one we'll see, uh, Alexandrinus, abbreviated with a capital A. Uh, Sinaiticus is a 4th century Greek manuscript dated around 340 A.D., generally considered to be the most important witness to the text because of its antiquity, accuracy, and lack of omissions. In, in other words, it has fewer missing verses and missing paragraphs and appears to be the most complete copy of, uh, of previous manuscripts. And then the story of how uh, Count Tischendorf founded in the monastery and different things. It's a remarkable story if you ever want to read through that. And then the third one, Codex Alexandrinius, capital letter A. It's about a century later. It's a 5th century manuscript. And so it's not as, as vital as, as Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. But it, is, uh, it has some remarkable readings to it. And it's very, uh, uh, very thorough. That's Codex Alexandrinus. The last one I'll give you, and we'll move back to our slideshow, is this third one, which is capital letter C, Codex Ephraimi Rescriptus. Or just call it Codex Ephraimi, but Codex Ephraimi Rescriptus. This one is wonderful because of the way it was found and the way it was restored. Because it's called a Rescriptus, that means it was erased and, and rewritten over. See, it was a manuscript of the New Testament and this Ephraimi guy needed, he was out of parchment, he needed parchment to write his sermons. And so what he had done was he had scrubbed out the words of the, of the, of the Bible, of the New Testament, and he had written his sermons on it. See. And uh, it's interesting is how it was discovered. The manuscript is a palimpsest, rubbed out, erased, rescriptus, rewritten. It originally contained the Old and New Testaments, but they were erased by Ephraim, who wrote his sermons on the leaves. By chemical reactivation, Tischendorf was able to decipher the almost invisible writing. Only 209 leaves survived, 64 from the Old and 145 from the New Testament. That's out of, an, uh, out of originally 238. The pages are not in half by two and a half inches, with one wide column of 40 to 46 lines. It's uh, located in Paris, and it describes the uh, text types and so forth. The uh, manuscript has been corrected by two scribes, 
And so they are referred to as C2 or C3 or CB and CC when they are uh, when they're indexed. All right, that's enough of that. Um, Biza is pretty neat because it's bilingual. It's got Greek on one side, Latin on the other side. Uh, but this is what we go through when we do New Testament studies, when we try to examine the text, all right? So now you have a little bit of a clue what these things are that you're looking at. The Pool of Bethesda, that's the reading of A, Codex Alexandrinius. That's the reading of C, that's Codex Ephraimi Rescriptus, the one that had been written over for this guy's sermons, all right? Uh, it's also the reading of the majority text. That's what this uh, cursive M here is all about. That's the majority text, the uh, majority of the Byzantine text tradition that our uh, the, uh, received text was based on or that King James is based on. And then these families of, uh, of minuscules, family one and family 13, those are collections of minuscule manuscripts. And so it's got wonderful early support. The reading of Bethsaida, though, is extremely early because it includes these uh, Bodmer papyris here, papyri 66 and papyri 75. All right. Also, it's the reading of Vaticanus, and it's the reading of Jerome's Vulgate in the fifth century when Jerome translated the Vulgate. Then the much more obscure Bethzatha, even though amazingly enough, that's the decision that the Nestle text chose, and the my favorite Greek Bible chose it. Uh, I think they did so because of the dominance of Sinaiticus, and and uh, and I just don't think the evidence supports that. Uh, one other uncial, dominant uncial here supports it, as well as minuscule number 33, the Queen of the Cursives. The greatest minuscule manuscript we have is is 33, and uh, that's your evidence for Bethzatha, but it's definitely it's uh, it's underwhelming. Okay, now. What's the name of this pool? Bethesda? Bethsaida? Bethzatha? Who cares? Okay. Now, don't get me wrong. Who cares is a good answer. Uh, only so far as we understand all scriptures, God breathed and profitable. So let's stop and let's not be glib. Let's not just be dismissive of it. Okay. Because all scripture is God breathed and profitable, including this scripture. Okay. And the miracle that takes place at this pool is a blessing. And the teaching that uh, John recorded, this is one of the seven signs that can lead a person to Christ in demonstrating that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Um, but the spelling of it, or the particular name of it, uh, can we relax about that a little bit? The neat part about text criticism is when you look at the, uh, it's, it's about 200,000 variants where spelling changes, punctuation changes, etc., etc. And as I mentioned, 99.5% of them have no bearing on anything other than spelling and punctuation, all right? And none of them, even that other 0.5%, none of them has any bearing on doctrine, okay? Never touches atonement, never touches salvation, never touches deity, never touches any fundamental doctrine of the faith. There is nothing that we believe from redemption to salvation to eternal security to any doctrine you can outline. There is no doctrine that's dependent upon a text variant of the New Testament or the Old Testament. So whether you read from the New American Standard, whether you read from the King James, whether you read from the Living Bible, you read from some contemporary English version paraphrase, 
Okay? It's the God-breathed and inspired, living and abiding Word of God. And we can relax about some of these, uh, some of these variants. Now, this one may seem kind of minor. What about the next one? Subpoint B. The inclusion or omission of verse 3B and verse 4 is another good text criticism exercise. In other words, does it belong in there or not? The inclusion slash omission, the inclusion or omission of verse 3b or verse 4 is another good text criticism exercise. The majority text includes it. Critical texts omit it. I meant to bring up my uh, apparatus up here and let you know which, uh, which manuscripts include it. None of the early ones do. And even when some of the later ones, even when some of the 5th, 6th, and 7th century ones start including it, they, uh, they have massive differences among themselves. They, they occur, but there's no consistent reading for the particular words and so forth. And a lot of times in, say, the 6th, 7th, and 8th century manuscripts, when, they do, when they, these verses do start showing up, they're put in the text, but then there's a little, uh, it's called an obelisk, there's a uh, sign that's put in the margin by the text indicating that the scribe himself felt that the, uh, the verse was disputable, or the verse was in question. And so in the margin of the Bible I'm reading up here, it says early manuscripts do not contain the remainder of verse 3 nor verse 4. And they put those in brackets. Okay? I imagine you have something similar in your Bibles. We have any NIVs here this morning? Gary, you got an NIV, don't you? No? Okay. Or New King James. They're all pretty much doing the same thing. Okay, And that's another very important point. The critics of text criticism, the critics of Greek scholarship. I had a pastor a few months ago told me that I was well, he was pretty cruel in what he was saying, but the only reason you, you, you try to bring up Greek and Hebrew is because you're trying to hide something. And you're trying to control your people. See? And you're using that as your control device. Because they can't check you out. They can't, they'll just blindly follow you like blind sheep because, well, you say that, well, in the Greek this is what it says. And your people are a bunch of idiots and they go, oh, okay. Right? And his approach, he told me, you need to teach out of the King James and don't worry about the Greek and Hebrew and just teach from the Bible so your people can check out what you're saying. Anyway. Um, hmm. You know, if we really were trying to hide something, okay, then, then why even put those words in there? Why did the editors of the New American Standard put them in there? Now, sure, they put them in in brackets, because they felt that the manuscripts were iffy. They thought the manuscripts were questionable. But they weren't trying to hide anything. If they were trying to hide it, they wouldn't even put them in there, would they? Okay. No, the words are in there. They're in brackets to demonstrate that, you know, the manuscripts are not as solid as, as, uh, as you would think. Okay. All right. Now, it's a good text criticism exercise. Um, do they belong in there? I would say... Um, 20 years ago, no one would have even disputed it. Absolutely would have said, these don't belong in there. No question whatsoever. But in the last 10 years or so, um, Zane Hodges and some other Greek scholars in our circles, no less, 
um, have really started to examine that text and have started to believe that, no, those do belong in the original manuscripts. They should be in there. And the reason being, if we just read through here now, uh, there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. All right. And a man was there who had been ill 38 years, and Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition. He said to him, Do you wish to get well? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. Okay? And now it kind of leaves a question, doesn't it? Well, where did that come from? What's up with this water is stirred up thing? Okay? And because of that, it's usually thought that a scribe at some point felt that maybe a little bit of an explanation there would be helpful. Okay? And so if if verse 3b and 4 wasn't really originally there, if John didn't write those, then there was a scribe at some point who thought that that reference to the water stirred up in verse 7 uh, needed a little bit of explanation. Okay? Um, otherwise, Jesus walks up. There's a pool. There's a bunch of sick people laying around. He says, do you want to get well? I have no man to put me to the pool when the water is stirred up, while I am coming another steps down before me. Okay? And so that's the logic behind the thought that a scribe felt that those words need to go in there. Okay? Anytime you have a question of exclusion, omission, and so forth, you have to ask, which way was more likely? Is it more likely that a scribe added a few words? Or is it more likely that a scribe took something out? Okay? And more often than not, a scribe would be very, very reluctant to take anything out. Because there's curses pronounced upon him if he removes from the Word of God, right? <laughs> don't add to this Bible, don't take away from this Bible. I mean, a scribe must be in a hard spot anyway when he's trying to copy a manuscript by hand and, you know, he's looking at a verse and he just, is he going to take it upon himself to say, I don't think that verse belongs in there and take it out? There's not a Bible scribe that's going to do that lightly. Okay? It's much more natural. Additions are more natural than deletions, by and large, as a rule. Now, there are exceptions, of course. And so you, scholars have to decide, was this, uh, did the scribe take it out when John originally had it in there? Or did a scribe insert this explanation when John originally didn't explain what the, the stirred up waters were all about? Okay? And you have to decide which was more reasonable and which manuscripts had it which way and, and come to a decision on that. Okay? All right. Now, um, let's deal with some other things here. Are there any questions on this before I go on? Because I want to deal with the text. I don't want you to walk out of here just dazed by technical stuff and in, in manuscripts and in that. Is there any questions, Susie? Okay. Right. Right. 
Yeah, by and by and large, yeah, you're, the, the verse they're all they're going to be rather consistent, right? Verse one is going to be followed by verse two, going to be followed by verse three, and they're all saying the same thing. It's just there will be spelling differences here and there, there will be punctuation differences in different places, and a lot of times when the mistake comes in, we do the same thing just because one line ended with a the, and you got down here to the left. And you duplicate the the and you keep on going. There's tons of those. And, that, and that's what the differences are, for the most part, in these manuscripts. And it's my understanding that the, where the word like inconsistencies in the Bible, you know, specifically the books that we don't have in the Bible, where there may be some, you know, or there's, um, what's the word, there's some apocryphal books and so forth. Yeah, because there's some major inconsistencies that books don't. Well, that's part of it, yeah. The the uh, well, canonicity is a whole separate matter altogether, determining what book belongs in here, what book doesn't. Um, but even within, there is text criticism of apocryphal books too, because there are a variety of manuscripts that do contain those books. The Septuagint, for example, contained the Old Testament apocrypha, but they put them in a at the back in a different section. They didn't include them with the uh, with the canonical books. Neither did the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example. They included a lot of the apocryphal books, but they didn't classify them with the Bible books. Um, so yeah, there's text criticism work that that goes into there as well. The the nature of those books being excluded, though, was not necessarily a text decision, but simply a recognition that they weren't the word of God, that they weren't given by God through an apostle for the edification of the church. For the most part, they were forgeries centuries after the apostles were long dead, you know, claiming to be written by Barnabas, but they were written in the seventh century. So, you know, Barnabas obviously was no longer around seven centuries later. Um, that's the reason for excluding most of those apocryphal books as far as, as far as that goes. Yeah, canonicity is a separate study, but it, it ties in with, uh, with text criticism. Ethel? Uh-huh. A codex is a, is a compilation of books. It's a collection of, 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 of books. In other words, it's not... Right. Well, it pretty much is. It's, you could you think of it as a synonym for Bible. It's a collection of manuscripts into a form into a, a volume, realizing that originally John was a scroll, and Mark was a scroll, and Luke was a scroll, and Matthew was a scroll, and somebody came along and said, let's compile these now into this form. And actually it was quite a change from the scroll method, because with a scroll you were kind of limited in terms of you know, how long you could roll that thing out. Um, in, in a codex, in a book form actually, where you, you, they took it and they would take a parchment and glue a parchment to the back of it and have two-sided pieces of paper almost, right, and bind them together, uh, that was really a novel innovation. And we can thank the New Testament and the Christianity for developing the, the first, uh, you know, for getting us out of the age of scrolls, you know. It was, uh, of course, nowadays we've gone past this, haven't we? We've gone to CDs, we've gone to digital electronic texts and so forth. Yes, ma'am. New American reversed. No, I think the there's an there's an NIV revised that's just a year old, yeah, and then there's the NIV R, and uh, there's no NAS revised. The revised standard version, perhaps. 
Yeah. Well, in 1995, they did do an update to the New American Standard and uh, where they removed the last semblances of the these and the thous except for Psalms. Um, but no, there's no revised. It hasn't been since 95 anyway on the New American Standard. There could be a new American Bible, which is a Catholic Bible, that doesn't have the word standard. It's just New American Bible. And I don't know if the Catholics have revised that lately or not. Okay. Yeah, just write it down. Let me know what it is. All right, when we get back next week, we'll move on to point three. We'll deal with these five porticos, daily packed with multitudes in need of healing. We'll actually look at the meat, at the healing itself and the uh, Lord's uh, compassion. And I'll just give you something to chew on here and think about between now and next week. Uh, how many How many sick people were here? It says a multitude. Of sick, blind, lame, and withered. So that's at least four. Must be more than that. Okay. If you, you know, sick, blind, lame, and withered, there's a multitude. So you assume is there more than one sick guy, more than one lame guy, more than one blind guy, more than one withered guy? How many people are here? And if it really is that crowded to where only one guy gets down into that pool at a time when it starts bubbling, okay. How many people are here? Jesus doesn't heal them. Not all of them. He heals one of them. And only one. And he leaves the rest of them sick, blind, lame, and weathered. Why would Jesus do that? He must be cruel. No. Can't be cruel. So why is he leaving them sick, blind, lame, and weathered? Why does he only heal the one? I'll give you some things to think about. We'll come back to this next week. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that we can trust your word. We thank you and we praise you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.